This morning we are uh, continuing on in our series called Bible Mixtape, how some of the Bible's greatest hits can help us make sense of the rest of it. So again, the idea behind this is, uh, back in the day, uh, if you wanted to communicate your love or appreciation or concern for somebody, uh, maybe you'd put together a list of your favorite songs and put them on a mixtape and give it to that person to say like, hey, I see you, I appreciate you. And so uh, in my last few weeks here, uh, I'm doing that with my favorite uh, portions of scripture, uh, putting together a Bible mixtape to a community that I love and care about to say, hey, I see you, I appreciate you. And uh, sort of in the backdrop of this is this idea that um, the Bible is this really complicated, complex sort of thing. I don't know if you have encountered that um, but it can get really easy to like get caught up in the weeds of things. And uh, for me, these are some of the passages that like I return to time and time again to like come up for air <laughs> to help like reorient myself in the midst of that confusion and that complexity. And so uh, this morning we're continuing on with that. And as we do that, we are going to jump into Jesus's words in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So um, the Sermon on the Mount being this like sort of in-depth. Um, uh, intimate sort of look at what others have called uh, this with God life. This life in which um, God is, or Jesus is inviting us into where we get to experience this closeness, this connection, this intimacy with God's very self on earth as if it were in heaven. Um, but as we get ready to jump into these words, uh, I'm going to invite Bob up, who's going to help me act out uh, part of this. So as he makes his way up here, we'll jump into the words here. So we uh, read, you have heard that it was said. So uh, this comes in a stretch of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus engages in what we might call like a a rabbinic sort of uh, method of teaching. So it comes in this sort of pattern of you have heard that it was said, fill in the blank. But I say to you, fill in the blank. So again, this was like the, the, the pattern of, a uh, classic pattern of rabbinic teaching. The, the Jewish leaders would often engage in this. It was a way of saying, you have heard that it was said and addressing part of the law and then saying, but I say to you, a, a, an interpretation of this law, not like contradicting the law, but offering their interpretation, their understanding of this law. And so we're in a stretch of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has done this. So he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. So here he draws attention to the law that says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But he says that his interpretation on it, his spin, his understanding of what this with God life will look like is to not resist an evil doer. Now from this point on, Jesus goes and offers three different examples of what it might look like to live this out. The first example here is, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And this is where we're going to have Bob's help here. So, you know, this is like UFC Mennonite style here. So pay attention to some very specific details here. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek. Now, in the Jewish world, um, if you were to strike somebody, you could only use your right hand. Uh, If you were to use your left hand, some Jewish community said that you could be uh, kicked out for something like 10 days. I don't know the reasoning behind this, but like we see this even in cultures today where like you have your right hand, which is sort of your public hand. This is how you shake hands and do business and all of that. And your left hand is your private hand. And we just say, thank goodness for modern advances of technology like toilet paper. Yes, we'll leave it at that. But maybe that's sort of the the thing behind this. But like if you were to strike somebody, you had to use your right hand. Okay. So Jesus says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, so Bob pretends, uh, Strike me on the right cheek. How are you going to do it? How? Yeah. Okay. So it's a backhand, yes? All right. Now, 
a backhand has stood the test of time for millennia. It always communicates not something, something not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally, yeah? I mean, we have a derogatory name for a backhand, yes, even to this day. A backhand was intended for somebody of lesser uh, status or power than you. A backhand was a way of uh, reasserting your position over them. It was a way of reminding somebody that they are less than you. So you can imagine, perhaps Bob is a slave master and I am a slave in a household. Or perhaps Bob is uh, the, the landowner and I'm a day laborer. Or perhaps Bob is my spouse and he backhands me as a way of demonstrating his power and authority over me. So he's just backhanded me, I'm down on the ground, and Jesus says, you turn the other cheek also. So I stand up, having just been struck on the right cheek, I now turn my left cheek. How can you hit me now with your right hand? Ah, see a backhand's reserved for somebody of lesser status, but a forward slap or a punch is reserved for an equal. <laughs> see, Jesus has just said, if somebody degrades you and calls you less than them, if somebody has just humiliated you uh, with this dehumanizing sort of act of violence, you stand up and you've put the decision back on them of how they will choose to respond. Either they back down or they punch you as an equal. So again, imagine you're uh, um, in the field with all of the other day laborers and this uh, uh, abusive landowner comes up or this abusive slave master comes up and all of your fellow slaves are around. They just backhand you. You're on the ground. You stand up and you rise. And everybody goes, oh, dang. <laughs> because see, what happens here is all of the shame gets transferred in this situation. The shame that was once put on the victim, the casualty, the, the bearer of the abuse, all of that shame has now been transferred back onto the abuser, the perpetrator, and they are now faced at a decision point of how they will move forward. Will they choose to move forward in shame and either backhand me with their left hand to be excommunicated from the community? Will they punch me as an equal, which is a strong statement to everybody else who is less than them, uh, who's watching? Or will they choose to back down with their tail between their legs? Thank you, Bob. The next example here. <clears throat> Jesus says, if anyone wants to see you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. You'll understand why we're not acting this one out in just a second. So this was in a, uh, a day and age where like, people could quite literally sue you for your coat. Uh, that tends to be a, just an expression that we have that means like they want to sue you for everything that you have. But in Jesus' day, this could quite literally happen. People were so poor that all that they had was the coat on their back. And you can imagine how disgusting it would be for somebody to want to take the very last thing that somebody has from them. And yet we look around us and we recognize that this is still sort of our modern human uh, practice, right? That we want to take uh, advantage of people, run them to the extent that we take everything from them. And so Jesus here is saying, if somebody wants to dehumanize you so much that they take your very last possession, your coat, give them your cloak also. In Jesus' day, people tended to wear two uh, articles of clothing, a coat, which was their outer garment, and their cloak, which was their undergarment. Dare I say, their underwear. <laughs> so imagine the imagery here. Jesus says, if somebody wants to take your coat, give it off, take it off and give it to them. But go ahead, just give them the rest of it too. So you take off your cloak. Now, this would have been an incredibly taboo situation for the person who witnesses the nakedness of another person. This is Jesus, by the way, talking about like just stripping down in public. Yeah, this is fascinating sorts of things. Yeah. 
the idea here is like, if somebody refuses to see your humanity, go ahead and strip all the way down to your birthday suit and force them <laughs> to see your humanity. Again, this is a scenario where we're taking the shame of the person who has been uh, victimized, the person who has been the casualty, the person who has been acted upon, and it's moving it back upon the, the perpetrator, the perpetrator, the victimizer, and it's forcing them into a decision of do they continue to move forward, heaping more and more shame upon themselves, or do they stop the cycle of violence and end it? We have one more situation here. Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile also. So Jesus lived in first century uh, Palestine, which was occupied territory. So the world superpower of the day, the Roman Empire, uh, occupied this land. And so for a Jewish person in the first century, this is like being at home, but having a stranger like setting up shop in your living room and calling the shots, yeah? And so uh, one of the, the things that the Roman Empire would do is they dictated all sorts of like, abusive practices of the Jewish people. And so one of the things that could happen is that a Roman soldier could pick you out of a crowd and force you to carry his pack for exactly one mile. Because if you went more than a mile, of course, that would be unjust, yeah. But you can imagine like, how uh, inconvenient this would be, right? I mean, you're on your way to work, you're rushing uh, because, you know, Kids take a while to get ready in the morning, and so you're running late, and then a Roman soldier says, hey, carry my pack for me. Or perhaps you're taking your kids to school, right? And you know the chaos of that. Maybe this is just my season of life with kids that I've used kids as an example twice here. But it, you, like you can imagine the inconvenience of then having to take your kids a mile out of the way that you were already corralling them to carry the pack for this person. So Jesus says, if somebody forces you to go one mile, if the Roman soldier forces you to carry his pack for one mile, first off, you do it. So you can imagine, you get to the end of one mile. Now, if a soldier were to force you to go more than one mile, this is like punishable for them. They could experience all sorts of penalty um, uh, through like the Roman uh, court because they forced you to go more than one mile. So Jesus says, you go one mile, and you can imagine you get there, and the soldier says, okay, punk, give me my pack. And you go, no, 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 that's all right. What's the soldier going to do? You can imagine, he's like, okay, okay, punk, for real, give me my stuff. Everybody's starting to watch now, right? Everybody knows this law that you can only go one mile. And you go, nope, it's okay. You take your third and your fourth step. And now the soldier's like, okay, for real, punk, you got to stop. Nope, it's all right. And you start taking your next steps. And now, eventually, the soldier gets down on his hands and knees and is like, no, no, please, please, please stop carrying my pack, yeah? Again, recognize, we've just taken the shame that has been put upon the victim, the casualty, um, the person who has been experiencing this abuse, and it's been transferred now upon the abuser the perpetrator, the one inflicting the pain and suffering upon another. And now it's forcing them into a decision point. Will I continue down this, this taboo path, bringing more and more shame upon me? Or will I back down and stop this cycle of violence? See, this wisdom and this brilliance of Jesus is that he offers us um, an alternative path to this dichotomy that we often exist in of fight or flight. See, to fight back in any of these situations would be to continue this cycle of violence. 
would be to respond uh, with violence to violence. It would be to stand up and punch um, the slave master back. It would be to countersue the other person. It would be to revolt against the, the soldier. But to flight from the violence would mean that you back down and allow that slave master to continue this pattern of dehumanizing violent behavior. Uh, to flee from the, the sewer taking everything from you would be to allow that person to continue this mass of wealth while taking everything from everybody around them. And to back down from the Roman soldier never once challenges these oppressive uh, um, patterns of behavior from, these uh, from those who are occupying your land. Jesus offers an alternative to this dichotomy. And see, this is the brilliance and the wisdom of Jesus, because Jesus' vision for peace isn't about perpetuating violence, nor is it about accepting violence. But Jesus' vision for peace is about disrupting it. Notice that in all three of these scenarios that Jesus offers here, that something that we might call agency has been taken away from those who have been acted upon. To have been backhanded, to have been sued, to be forced to carry somebody else's pack. All of your agency as a human being has been taken away from you. But in the response that Jesus has given them, Jesus has put the agency back in their hands. And no longer are they just simply being acted upon, but now they are doing the acting. But they're not acting in a way that's perpetuating violence. They're not acting in a way that's accepting the violence, but they're acting in a way that is disrupting Again, this speaks to like the brilliance and the wisdom of Jesus because uh, our brains function on autopilot uh, much of our life. And that's a good thing, right? I mean, think about all of the millions of decisions that you would have to make throughout your day if you had to consciously do that, right? Think about breathing. Breathe in, breathe out. How many times do you do that a day? And how many times do you get caught up in a conversation and you're talking fast and you maybe would forget to breathe and then everybody's passing out around us because they're in dialogue with one another, right? Like our brains go on autopilot and that's a good thing. And one of the ways that our brains go on autopilot is in this reaction of like fight or flight. And that's not just the person who's like being victimized. It's also the one inflicting the pain. Because when you're inflicting pain upon somebody, your brain is automatically thinking they will respond in fight or flight. And so you're prepared for fight or flight. But when somebody chooses an alternative, when they're not just simply perpetuating violence or accepting the violence, but when they choose to disrupt the violence, it acts as something like a cog in the wheel of the brain that forces them to stop and catch this. Actually think about what they're doing. I can recall uh, a handful of times in high school where like, you'd get caught up with your friends and you're, you're, you're joking about somebody. And that joking quickly turns into, like, verbal assault, right? <laughs> and then somebody steps in and says something, and, like, you're like, oh, I didn't even realize that that's where we were headed with this, right? Like, you just get caught up in it, and, like, one thing moves to the next until that cog gets stuck in the wheel and forces you to, like, stop and realize what it is that you're actually doing. And I think that this is what Jesus' vision for peace is about, it's, it's a, a vision for peace that, first and foremost, stops the violence from the person that's experiencing it and leads to their healing and their wholeness. But I think a close second, and maybe like a 1B to 1A, is that it creates a scenario in which the person who's doing the victimizing, who's doing the abuse, who's doing the dehumanizing violent acts, 
is forced in a scenario where they have to stop and perhaps like change their heart or their mind and go a different path. Which, by the way, is what the Bible refers to as repentance. See, when we choose not to just perpetuate violence or accept violence, but when we choose instead to disrupt violence, this is creating a scenario in which all parties present and um, experiencing this can experience something like healing and wholeness. Now, over the last uh, couple of years, I've become increasingly aware of um, the shadow side of this sort of uh, teaching on uh, Jesus and his position on peace. And the shadow side of this often involves um, those experiencing something like uh, domestic or spousal abuse. And the way that this often goes is that we, we, we preach peace, right? Which means that we, we lead towards forgiveness and reconciliation without ever like um, pursuing like accountability or repentance on the one who's doing the abusing. And so the way that this teaching often goes is that we, we, we put it upon the, the abuser to like stay in this situation, living into quite literally like a living hell. Because that's the good Jesus-y thing to do. Uh, in a recent um, article in Anabaptist World, uh, Susanna Griffith, uh, a professor at AMBS, uh, laid out a, a pretty detailed account of her experience in a, um, uh, an abusive marriage. And she talked about uh, moving into a Mennonite community uh, with the hope that this would be the support that she needed to get some space. And she said she received messages of, like, very um, slight messages of, like, I'm praying that you're working on your marriage. Uh, I pray that forgiveness may be a possibility. Uh, I hope that you are moving towards reconciliation. There wasn't really that same sort of emphasis on her her partner. Um, and she said it took like some people coming alongside of her and willing to like walk into the lawyer's office to like end that abusive situation. At the end of this article, she notes that the spiritually abusive weaponization of forgiveness and reconciliation runs deep through the veins of Mennonite culture. These distortions of forgiveness, reconciliation, devoid of accountability or justice figure into peace theology, and hurt vulnerable people. It's time for Mennonites to own up to the violence that privileged peace theology does to survivors and victims. So if uh, you or somebody that you know or love um, is experiencing something like domestic or spousal abuse, um, I don't believe it's God's will that you stay in that situation and continue to experience that living hell. In fact, I think that it's very much in line with Jesus' vision for peace to leave that situation. Um, Because I think in leaving that situation, that is a bold and radical and subversive act of disrupting that act of violence. Again, I can't make it clear enough. Like, it is not God's will that somebody would stay in that situation of abuse. But to leave is a radical act of disrupting that violence. So again, if you or anybody that you know is in that, please talk to me, talk to one of our elders, and we can uh, work at um, um, finding ways of disrupting that violence. Um, So what what might it look like then uh, to put like some flesh upon this idea of disrupting violence? What might it look like to like live this out in our our daily life? 
Well, this is an instance over the last couple of years where I've become increasingly uh, convinced that I need to be a strict and staunch biblical litera- literalist when it comes to this teaching. So I've decided if I ever get jumped or mugged, uh, I'm going to follow Jesus' teaching and give them not only my wallet and my phone and my keys and my watch, but also my shirt and my shoes and my pants. And we'll leave it at that, yeah? <laughs> I'm just going to, if they refuse to see my humanity, I'm just going to continue to force them to see all of my humanity in my glorious birthday suit, if I can say that. Anyways, uh, I kid, kind of. And the reason why I'm only kind of kidding is because I think to engage in disruptive acts, toward, of, or to, to engage in ways of disrupting violence requires like a bold kind of creativity, Almost like on the verge of insanity, maybe even, right? And I think the reason why it requires creativity is because we look around us at all of the ways that we have broken our world through acts of violence. And we recognize that that's come through like immense amounts of creativity. And if we're going to try and put our world back together and heal our world through acts of peace, I think it's going to require a similar level of creativity. And so uh, some of the, so just a couple examples that I've heard of like how people have tried to disrupt violence are, um, one comes from uh, Shane Claiborne, an actor, or an, uh, an author, an activist who I know many of us are, are familiar with. He said one day he was walking down his neighborhood with a kid from his neighborhood and they get jumped. These kids have like broom handles and rocks and are, are beating them up and the kid looks at Shane like, what are we going to do? Shane says he musters up all of his Pentecostal spirit that he can, and he stands up and says, I am a child of the living God, created in the image of God, and in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you and cause you to stop. Well, what are you going to do to that, right? Like, you're not just going to keep hitting the person. So he said the kids drop their sticks and drop their rocks and they go home. That's a radical act of disrupting violence, right? It's not perpetuating it. It's not uh, accepting it. But it's a way of disrupting it, right? Uh, another one that's sort of a classic example is if you see somebody um, experiencing some sort of violence, whether it be physical or uh, emotional or mental, just walk up and act like you know the person. Just walk up. Hey, Jerry, how you doing? What, how's it been? Like, has it been five years already? How's Susan? How are the kids, right? Again, you're expecting somebody to fight or flight in that mode. What are you doing if an acquaintance pops up and starts chit-chatting with them? You don't have a category for that. And so, like, this is a way of disrupting the violence, yeah? These are two examples. Hopefully, they can spark some inspiration for you. Um, but I will note that, like, to do this, it takes a lot of bravery and a lot of courage, yeah? Um, I was thinking this past week of uh, a handful of examples where I've seen somebody experiencing either um, uh, physical or verbal uh, abuse I chose to go the other way. Um, it, it seemed scary to step into that situation, and uh, I just kind of kept my head down and hoped that I wouldn't get caught up in it. Yeah. So I, I share all of this not as like you know an expert in this, but as like a fellow sojourner trying to figure out how to like live into this vision of Jesus's peace. But the thing about Jesus's peace is that like he promises time and time again throughout the Gospels that like. He's with us. He's with us in his spirit. And when we step into those moments of trying to disrupt violence, like we don't have to do it on our own. Uh, we don't have to come up with that inspiration on our own. 
but like Jesus in his spirit is there with us, helping us tap into this vision for God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So my friends, may we get caught up in this way of Jesus. May we get caught up in seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May we get caught up in Jesus' vision of peace. And may we uh, not just perpetuate violence or accept violence, but may we muster up the courage and the bravery and the creativity that it takes um, to disrupt violence. Amen.